HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bin to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet. Learn more at bintotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month. This week on Meet and 3, we have stories about food in large quantities. From bulk buying groups and reasons for stocking up, to creative solutions for handling excess waste. We have someone picking up our corks from the wine bottles and they repurpose them to make buoys for boats and, and, and like shoes and all these different things. Yeah, because of the COVID, uh, everybody like uh, isolated at home. But uh, to see the people face to face is still exciting. So we kind of treat like a chance to say hello to the people and to the friend. Listen to Meat in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today we're talking about, amongst other things, foie gras. And foie gras has been a delicacy for about 5,000 years since the ancient Egyptians. And it's extolled in writings by the ancient Greeks and the Romans. And it is a tradition in several areas of France and has been for centuries. And yet there are recently battles over the ethics of foie gras that have loomed large in the culinary world. Well, that's one discussion, and we are going to have a discussion with someone who knows a lot about foie gras, but we're also going to talk about the food of her region in Gascony, which is where much of the foie gras is produced and consumed in France. My guest today is Ariane Degan, founder, owner, and CEO of D'Artagnan, the well-known gourmet food purveyor. They're famous for providing humanely raised meats, from game to foie gras to organic chicken and prepared charcuterie. That was a nice statement I took right off the website, Ariane. <laughs> Ariane, was, <laughs> Ariane was born into a world of great food in the rural region of Gascony in France. Her father, Chef André Degan, was famous throughout France for his artistry with foie gras and other Gascon specialties that he prepared at his Michelin-starred restaurant at Hotel de France in Auch. Uh, Auch is the capital of the region of Gascony. Ariane herself 
was expert at deboning ducks, rendering duck fat, preparing terrines, and cooking game birds by the time she was 10. A career in food might have seemed natural, but Ariane decided to come to the United come to the United States and pursue an academic degree at Barnard Columbia University. While working part-time for a New York pâté producer, Ariane was in the right place when the opportunity to market the first domestically produced foie gras presented itself. She and a co-worker pooled their financial resources to launch D'Artagnan, or D'Artagnan, D'Artagnan, as it said in American, in 19, and that was launched in 1985 as the first purveyor of game and foie gras in the U.S. And since then, D'Artagnan has been a leader in the food industry by making sustainable meats. Welcome, Marianne. I, it was hard for me to focus on your bio because I was thinking ahead about um, about potential crises, of course, but um, first of all, let's talk about you. Let's talk about you and your background because, you know, as I said in your bio, which came off of, I, I think it was either your website or one of the um, the websites, you were really raised and brought up around food in the hospitality industry, well, for your whole life and in a very rural setting. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and it's, uh, first of all, thank you very much, Linda, for having me today and uh, for talking about my favorite, favorite subject, <laughs> foie gras. So that's very nice. Um, yeah, it's not just rural, it's Gascogne. Gascogne, it's the southwest France um, where we are very, very opinionated and we have our definitive uh, advice and, and um uh, point of view on food in general and um, fowl in particular, but good food. You know, in Gascogne, in Gascogne, um, when you knock at the door and somebody answers, they don't say hello. They say, "Have you eaten?" That's mm-hmm. the first. You know, it's the first sentence um, there. And um, my father was well known, and his restaurant was well known for. Uh, all things duck and goose and foie gras and magret, uh, which is the breast uh, of that animal in particular. So I was born in there. I was born in the hotel um, with my brother and my little sister. We went to help, you know, after homework or during vacation. Uh, it was a small family business, 37 rooms in the hotel and um, in a very provincial town where uh, it was very seasonal. So we naturally, we learned uh, everything on the, you know, on the ground, just by necessity, just because it, it was a small family business. The only thing is um, I was the eldest, but I was a girl. And so at that time, girls were not um, destined to be... Um, uh, following up the business, they were destined to find a husband and follow the husband. Mm-hmm. So all my, all my youth, it was never said, but it was understood that it was going to be my younger brother who was going to take over. And so he had a path, you know, whether it's in a kitchen, in a, uh, garde manger, rotisserie, sauces, uh, uh, mise en place. He had a path to uh, a, a training or uh, almost like an internship 
whereas I had to go wherever and whatever was needed. So I think we learn more or less the same things, except in, in not in the same order. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but it's true that we were eviscerating, uh, ducks and geese and, and, um, making, uh, jars of foie gras and porcini and, uh, uh, charcuteries uh, at a very young uh, age. Um, in Gascony, in Southwest France, couple of things. One is we revere food, good food. We live to eat and, and we don't eat to, uh, to live. And we talk about food while we're eating. We talk about the next meal while we're eating. We talk about food in between the meals to plan the next one. I mean, this is, and in winter in particular, this is the uh, number one um, uh, leisure activity, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, and, and, it's, and it's evident when you look at the the dishes, the famous dishes that come from that region, uh, such as the cassoulet, uh, well, confit, confit is uh, throughout everywhere, but particularly the confit of, of duck, um, preserving, you know, these, you know, these ducks for a later time or for other dishes. Um, I, I heard it said or was written in, in some article about you or a book about you that, or about your father actually, who sadly passed last year. And, 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 uh, it, the, the, uh, saying was that duck fat is the local currency in Gascony. Yep. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I, duck I, fat I get or, it. Or goose fat. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the book that, uh, our friend Anne de Ravel, uh, did with my uh, father in English. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, uh, so duck fat is that, and, and goose fat is that gold, uh, liquid, um, that we think is the, um, reason why Gascon people don't die. I mean, they die yeah. eventually, but, uh, well, the, true. uh yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a history of longevity, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we have the, the least, um, instance of uh, cardiovascular disease in Gascony hmm. from all France. And France is, um, in its own right, have the least cardiovascular disease in, in all the world. So the, the, uh, documented, eh? So we really think that there is something there. People live very, very long. Uh, in Gascony, and it's probably a combination of quality of life, you know, not having the stressful, there is no big city in there, but also the regimen and the diet. And in the diet, one of the biggest thing is the medium in which you cook, and then the other thing is the beverage. So the medium in which we cook is duck fat or goose fat, and up until World War II, that's all we knew. We mm. made even dessert with it because that was the only fat that we had. There was no butter, uh, per se. The, uh, the cows were uh, working cows. They mm -hmm. were not dairy cows. And, uh, in war, during World War II, all of a sudden, uh, the government emitted, uh, coupons, ration coupons, so that people had a limited amount of butter when they go to the store. You know, the essential food like butter, flour, sugar, that kind right. of thing. And that's when Gascon discovered butter. What mm. is that ingredient that we need a ration, a ration coupon for? You know, because up until then, they didn't, they didn't use it at all. 
So, um, uh, duck fat is actually super uh, flavor enhancer in mushrooms, in vegetables, uh, but also, and French fries, try your French fries yes. in uh, duck fat, but also it has the exact right combination of poly and monounsaturated fats. Um, you know, as uh, olive oil is only polyunsaturated acids, um, duck fat and goose fat has a, the right amount of poly and monounsaturated fats and the right percentages of it that makes your HDL, your good cholesterol, right. goes up, which is a good thing because it automatically brings down the bad cholesterol. And so that's why we think that we live longer than anybody else in France, uh, the duck fat. The second thing being the beverage, and we are very big in red wine, and in uh, red the indigenous grape in Gascogne is tanat, and tanat, uh, it, as its name indicates, is very high in tannin. And tannin is high in uh, all those uh, antioxidants. And so we think that combination of the medium of fat being duck fat and the red wine high in tannin, we think that's why uh, Gascon people are so healthy. And, Sign and, me up. Sign me <laughs> up. I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Um, and and one of the most um, in popular of the indigenous wines is Madaran. Is that correct? Madirang is the appellation and Tanat is, in order to make Madirang, it has to be, I think, a hundred percent Tanat. Tanat. It's uh-huh. that okay. indigenous grape. Yeah. 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 It's not, uh, we, we tend to say it's not a, a wine for little girls. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it has a tannic, um, uh, on the side of the mouth. Um, but when you age it, then, this is what makes the body and the, the 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 structure of the wine, and so it's so it's so delicious. Right, and that's but that's why a... it goes so well. By the way, it goes so well with cassoulet, yes. confit, magret. You know, it tends to have a, that incredible symbiosis between the local food and the local wine. Yeah, that's what that's what I was going to mention. The fact that it it can stand up to those foods, which are all very hearty dishes. They're very hearty foods. Why? Why do you think in that region, the dishes that developed that became the let's say the the regional markers of the area um, are so hearty? A lot of stews, braised meats, the duck, the lamb, the squab. I'm, there are a lot of hearty dishes. Um, it's uh, na- naturally. I mean, when you look at the cuisine, first you have to look at the ingredients. You know what's out there. What's locally being uh, uh, abundant, and Southwest France is an oceanic climate, so it is uh, quite uh, humid uh, and temperate. It doesn't go to very low temperature. So because of that, or thanks to that, uh, there was a very natural waterfowl, uh, wild uh, waterfowl naturally, which we got domesticated. So. Lots of very, very good chicken, guinea hens, uh, ducks and geese, uh, pheasant, quail, uh, and the wild game, uh, the partridge, um, mm-hmm. uh, the wood pigeon. Wood pigeon is really, really big. We have a hunting um, tradition in uh, Gascony of uh, hunting wood pigeon 
uh, in uh, little um, tree houses, very, very high up, where guys uh, stay there for a whole week. Um, and you have most of the time they are downstairs in the makeshift kitchen, just eating and drinking like crazy. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a good excuse for guys to, um, uh, to get together uh, in September, October and to um, uh, not go to work, basically. But so the natural environment, the natural um, terroir, uh, brings those ingredients, the waterfowl, all those birds, all those wild birds. Then the mushrooms, porcini is the biggest ah, yes, thing over yes. there. Porcini and then in the spring, the little mousseron and St. George. And those are so delicious, but they also call for long cooking, the porcini, you know, the, um, mm-hmm. all those, uh, uh, canning tradition because before the advent of electricity, people had to keep that all, uh, all winter long, uh, to be able to eat it in, uh, small portions when, when they were hungry. And so that's how we developed in Gascony the, uh, the curing, the jambon de Bayonne, you know, at the mm-hmm. limit of uh, Béarn, Gascogne and uh, Basque. Um, and the, uh, and that's on the, the pork, but, um, for the preserving of the, um, of the poultry and of the duck and geese in uh, particular, the comfy and the comfying, uh, technique really was developed there. And that's where this impression of, uh, rich food came about, but it's not really rich food. It's, it's just fast food. Uh, elevated to uh, the the best technique possible, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you you actually to make comfy, you actually draw out the humidity, and then you cook very slowly in duck fat. Then you keep it in the duck fat, but you don't eat not necessarily that duck fat. You eat that piece of meat that was in there, whether it's uh, uh, the leg and thigh or uh, the piece of gizzard or. Um, Sometimes even a piece of magret or sometimes a, uh, the foie gras. You can confit the foie gras like that. So mm. that helped people in the Middle Ages, uh, without electricity that helped them keeping in their cupboard, uh, for six months, you know, during the winter months, uh, meat protein. Right. And, and that's where that tradition comes from. Um, you know, and it's, it's interesting because you had said that, um, th- that cooking is, in the Gascon region is, uh, cooking is revered and it's a way of life. And, you know, confit takes a lot of patience and a lot of time. So, you know, obviously but people spend it, a lot of time cooking, you know, all yeah. these dishes. Well, in Casuvet. Yeah. yeah, but, but you, you must realize it's in, you do it in batch. So you spend the whole weekend doing something and then you have all your individual little jars for the whole winter. It is fast food at, at, at its best. You know, when somebody comes unannounced, um, and, uh, you have to, to do some cooking, there is nothing easier than taking a duck leg, uh, comfy out of the, the fat and just warm it up really fast in there in, uh, um, in sweet peas or with some vegetable was some French fries or, or even some scalloped potatoes with parsley and, and garlic. Um, it, uh, or with a porcini, of course, but it, it goes super fast. It, you have a meal within 10 minutes, literally. 
That's excellent. Yeah. And can you describe, I mean, there, there's so much, um, oh, so many apocryphal stories surrounding cassoulet uh, and some of the tales of, you know, the the 20-year cassoulet. And, and there, of course, now instituted a few cassoulet contests, even here in America, who makes the best cassoulet. And I'm sure everyone has his or her own recipe for cassoulet. Um, I do include it, but... Uh, Describe for our listeners what what the components of a traditional cassoulet are. So, uh, my father used to say, cassoulet is not a recipe. Cassoulet is a way to argue between villages. <laughs> and so you have basically three places, Castelnaudary, where it was invented, Toulouse, and Hoche. Okay? Castelnaudary, where it was invented, we... The, the legend, uh, goes that, um, we, uh, where the, uh, the village was surrounded by the English, um, that was in the Middle Age and totally surround, you know, uh, circled and, and, um, siege. And so they couldn't get anything from the outside. And so there was a point where the mayor of the town, who was a woman, called the um, hero, you know, the guy who goes around and uh, talk in every street uh, to announce to, to announce the news. That was the, news, the, the New York Times of the time <laughs> was that guy who was going from street to street uh, yelling the news. And so that guy was saying, hey, we're starting to be low on food. Bring everything that you have in your cupboards Um in your pantries, bring them in the center of the village. We're going to do a big, big dish and we're going to share between us. And so middle of the winter, what did you have in the cupboards? You had dried beans because that's how you preserve them for the winter, you know, the mm-hmm. beans from the, the spring. And you had those cured meats, confit or other meats, but confit, you know, preserved in their fat in, um, in pots. Uh, and, and, uh, mostly duck and geese, but also, uh, some cured, uh, piece of, uh, pork, uh, called ventreche. In, in Italian, I think it's called pancetta. It's just, mm-hmm. uh, the raw right. belly that is cured with, uh, lots of pepper. And, um, uh, or sausages that were drying also. So everything was brought in the middle of the village. It is said that there was also some game. Uh, that had been preserved like that, like partridge and stuff like that. And so they cooked all that together, and that was the very first cassoulet. And <laughs> they also, the legend uh, says that um, uh, they threw some portions away, you know, from the uh, uh, the walls, the outer walls of the uh, castle. They just threw out some portions out away, uh, just to show the English people that um, we were not hungry, we could spoil. We, you know, we could send food out because we had so much food. Because when you siege uh, a city like that, uh, the city, the people inside uh, might be starving, but the people who are doing the siege are starving too. You know, right. they have to stay there. So, um, so psychologically. Uh, it was important to throw some food at them. Not too much, eh? but uh, maybe they burn corners. I don't know. So that's how the first cassoulet came about. And that's how in Castelnaudary, up to today, you're allowed to put quite 
any kind of meat protein you want and you like in your cassoulet because that's the tradition. Any mm. game meat, any any uh, lamb if you want, any meat. So that's the cassoulet of Castelnaudary with the base, which is a dry bean that has been uh, soaked in water and then cooked with something very flavorful like a ventreche or like a skin of a ham, you know, something to give flavor to the... Um, uh, to the beans. And then once they are cooked the day before, then the day off, you drain them and you assemble in a cassole. Cassole being the, the terrine in which you're going to cook all the, uh, you assemble all the meats, those beans, and, uh, you put it in an oven at a very, very high temperature so that all the flavors can mingle together. And you, you add liquid, usually duck broth, once in a while, so that it doesn't dry up too much. Yeah. So that's the Castelnaudary. <clears throat> in Toulouse, they do pretty much the same thing, except um, they add breadcrumbs on top of it. And uh, in Osh, we actually send to jail people who put breadcrumbs on top of their <laughs> cassoulet. That's a no-no. In, in Osh, we tend to want to make a cassoulet... Um, we don't need the breadcrumbs. Nobody needs the breadcrumbs. If your, if your, uh, the temperature of your oven is high enough, the, the, the beans on, on the top level are going to create that very magnificent, um, uh, layer of, uh, crustiness. A crusty, anyway. yeah. Crispy yeah. crust, right. And, which, which um, some of us believe is the best part. And, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. of course it is the best part. Yeah. Right. And, right. and, but, but also, what we believe in is to use coco tarbe. It's um, a bean that we're, we're snob eh, about the bean because it's a bean that um, is being harvested and um, cultivated in um, at the foot of the Pyrenees. But don't get me wrong, the beans came with um, uh, Christopher Columbus when he came back from the Americas. So mm. beans uh, are... Uh, um, indigenous from South America and America in general, except that when they brought it back and they started raising them there at the foot of the Pyrenees, something happened with the terroir and the special soil and the special weather, and it changed the quality of the of the bean. And that particular bean is perfect for the cassoulet for two reasons. One is because the thickness of the bean is perfect for that cooking. The cooking is going to be two hours, two hours and a half, depending on the size of your container. And the idea is to have half of the beans explode so that they actually make the sauce and puree in the sauce mm -hmm. and the other half stays whole. Mm -hmm. That's the quality of the bean, of the, of the tarbe bean, the coco tarbe. That's why we're using that bean always in, uh, in Osh. Um, the other particularity is that we don't put lamb ever in our cassoulet. That's a no-no. Uh, huh, lamb is too, yeah. we, yeah, we, we, we think it's too powerful a flavor and that is going to hide all the other flavors. Right. So oh, that, that makes sense. Yeah. That and the no breadcrumbs. It's, uh, but then after that, everybody has a little trick, a little secret recipe. Uh, hmm. my, uh, godfather, Zizou Dufour, um, he likes to, he likes to, uh, take a clove of garlic cut in half 
and um, put a little bit of duck fat in the cassole, in that, in the terrine, you know, in the cooking vessel. And he would, with the garlic, he would spread the duck fat all around. And that would, that would make an instant liner that is already flavorful and, and uh, very aromatic with the garlic and the duck fat. It Beats. all sounds so good. There's nothing bad in there. How could any? How could it come out no, bad? Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, it's delicious. And, and the key is to when you pre-cook the beans, the key is to add flavor to the beans. So it is important to either cook your bantrèche, your pancetta, mm-hmm. in that in that first cooking of the beans, uh, and or put a little bit of tomato paste and uh, put duck broth, cook it in duck broth. I, I always uh, add a, a spoonful of demi-glace, duck demi-glace in the water of the cooking of the um, of the beans. That's what mm-hmm. makes the flavor of the beans. And also, um, there are some recipes that call for never salt the beans in advance, salt yeah. them uh, at the end of the cooking, which is apparently better for digestion. Um, yeah, I don't know. The jury's kind of still out on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure yeah. which way I go on that, but <laughs> but yes, I that think, is. But that's it, the, that is sort of the, yeah, the unwritten the key, rule. Yeah, yeah the yeah. the key is is certainly to uh, soak them overnight, eh? right. Uh, right? And that's why we think of it as a two days uh, preparation because the first day you have to soak the beans, the second day you have to cook the beans, and the third day you have to assemble the beans with all the meats. And at D'Artagnan, the meats are, we, we have a cassoulet kit, you know, where we put a, a duck leg confit, the, the ventreche, uh, which is that pancetta, a, a duck sausage with armagnac, um, and a garlic sausage. And so all those things will, at the last stage, mingle with the, with the beans in the, uh, the cooking vessel for a couple of hours in a very hot oven. And that's it. It's very, very simple. All you have to do is make sure that um, it doesn't dry up. You know, once in a while, every time you pass by the uh, by the oven, you open it and you add a little bit of uh, uh, water that has been perfumed with some uh, duck broth or duck demi-glace in it, or, or mm-hmm. even a little bit of duck fat. And that's so it, it. Yeah. So again, it takes its time and patience and and you get this wonderful dish. There's another specialty that I want to talk about right after we take a quick break. So stay with us, and we will continue talking with Ariane again. This episode is brought to you by Bin to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet, founded by Ben Simon. After working for President Obama, Ben spent five years traveling the world for Greenpeace, campaigning on climate change and sustainable agriculture. He always kept his eye out for delicious food to bring back home. Now, with everyone's travels on hold and home cooking more important than ever, Ben's subscriptions provide a way for home cooks to experience different food cultures each month and put together nourishing, delicious meals with the best pantry items on the planet. With Taste the World, get a new shipment of different best-in-class ingredients to explore a new cuisine each month, along with tips and tricks to help out. We're talking delicious single-origin spices, cold-pressed olive oil, beautiful sauces, and lots of ways to use them. There's also an essential subscription which gets you a delicious assortment of heirloom, hard-to-find recipe staples. You can also get both each month with the full Ben to Table box subscription. 
Learn more at bentotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month and Bentotable will donate $10 to HRN. Okay, we're back and um, we've been talking about the wonderful dishes, the specialties and, and dishes, regional dishes of the Gascony region of France and the magre, the duck breast. It's not just any duck breast, but it has become really the signature dish and, and much in many thanks to your father for spreading the word about it and, and making it become so famous. Can you describe to us where, wh- why is that duck breast different? Magre is different than any other duck breast. So magre, in France, magre is the breast of a duck that has been fed for foie gras. So unless it comes from a foie gras duck, you cannot call it magre, you have to call it just duck breast. Mm-hmm. That's a big difference because a regular duck breast could be eight pounds. A magre will be close to one pound. It's double the size. It looks like a steak with a very uh, thin layer of fat uh, skin on top. It is dark red like a steak. I mean, it has a property. It has more property of red meat than of poultry. And so... Um, uh, when my father started and took over from his father the uh, the restaurant, the tradition um, was to uh, cook the whole duck, whole roasted, or to make comfy with everything, including the magret, um, simply because uh, the hygiene in the uh, processing the slaughterhouse at that time, you know, at the very beginning of the 20th century, that wasn't... Uh, up to snuff. So uh, you had to make sure that you were cooking um, your meat properly, uh, not to get uh, people sick. And that's how the tradition of comfy came about, or the whole, uh, the roasting of the whole animal. But that's how nobody ever thought to take that breast and just make a steak and cook it rare, like a steak. Nobody dared to do it. He was the first one who did that. Um, and that became a hit. No, first of all, it didn't become a hit immediately. Um, all the locals at the restaurant would come and say, what is this? It, it, what is that steak? What is that beef? What <laughs> they did were you aghast, do to that right? beef? Yeah. And um, uh, finally, my, my father would say, no, it's duck. And nobody would believe it. Even the, the people from Gascony, you know, because they had never seen it in that shape, like cooked rare. Um, and uh, one day came in the restaurant uh, an American journalist. His name is Bob Dale. Um, he's still here today. He lives in Connecticut. And Bob Dale came out totally enchanted uh, from the restaurant where he had the magret for the first time. And that was a mystery meat that he had never had anywhere else before. Of course, it didn't exist. I mean... In, not in that shape, you know, anywhere before. And he wrote about it in the New York Times. And so the uh, fame of the Magret came from America, relayed by the French press. And that's when finally my father started to um, uh, be popular in France with his invention, which was simply to take that breast and cook it rare instead of leaving it uh, and, and roasting it to death on the whole duck. 
that's yeah. how the whole thing uh, happened. It's thanks to America. Right. Yeah, um, it's amazing how that yeah. things like that happen. But now yeah. you say that the, this it has to be a breast that comes from a duck uh, that has been fed for foie gras. So now we're going to get into that discussion, foie gras. Uh, now, f- how did foie gras become sort of the 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 darling of the uh, of the Gascon region? That um, I mean, it's raised so many ducks and geese are there and raised there and then we have the controversy between should it be from a goose or a duck and um so the production is there's a lot of production there and but it figures uh greatly in in the cuisine also so how did a little bit of background and history as i mentioned it's been a, it's a delicacy that we have on record as having been around for millennia um but then it was sort of resurrected in that part of the world, in, in southern France. So can you talk about the, the story of foie gras for us? When, the, when you want to talk about the history of foie gras, you basically talk about the diaspora of the Jewish community mm-hmm. who, uh, at the beginning, were the farmers and the slave farmers of the Egyptians in Egypt, um, the Jewish population was uh, raising the animals and that's there in Egypt that for the first time foie gras was consumed. We know it because uh, it is in uh, several um, hieroglyphs and in particular in one in Saqqara. In Saqqara is where you have all the tombs, you know, those mini pyramids right. of the very important people uh, that were um, under uh, Tutankhamon, uh, and um, the there is this particular character. His name was T T I, um, who probably was like a big like a finance minister or somebody high up in uh, Tutankhamon's government, and who apparently loved loved foie gras, and that's how we know that foie gras existed there because in the hieroglyph. You know, when you're um, in the uh, Egyptian religion, um, you have to, when you die, uh, you get mummified and you have to go into an anti-chamber, you know, in a, in a uh, semi-permanent chamber where you have to wait a couple of centuries before you go to paradise. So in that chamber, which is where we found all the those mummies, you know, when people went and historians went to discover... You, uh, you have all kind of stuff not to get bored because you're going right. to spend a lot of time there as a mummy. And so the, the mummy of, of T obviously, uh, liked, uh, his wives. I think there were a couple of wives, uh, that were, uh, in and about in the, you know, that were locked in with him over there. But also <laughs> on the hieroglyphs, you see sceneries of agriculture and in particular, you see those slave farmers feeding um, little bowls of, we think, cereal. It looks like a, uh, the size of a meatball taking from a, taken from a plate um, of a farmer being kneeled down and giving that by hand to a goose. And that, we, um, we think, it's the, the proof of the first foie gras in the in the world uh, that was the first civilization that discovered that if you follow the natural propensity of webbed footed animals geese or ducks 
to force feed themselves before migration because they need more calories to be able to go north um, in the uh, in the spring and to go back from the north back to the um, to Egypt in uh, in the fall. Uh, when when um, uh, you are successful reproducing that um, that force feeding, you get that huge cockpit of calories, which is the liver of ducks and geese. No other animals, and, and believe me, we tried in Gascony, we tried to uh, force feed any kind of animal to see if we could, you know, get uh, the that beautiful liver from any other species. <laughs> it didn't work. It's only wet-footed animals, palmipeds, that um, have this natural propensity to store their calories in two places on their body, one, the liver, and two, the skin. The skin, and this is why when you make a magret or when you cook a whole uh, roasted a whole, goose, a whole duck or goose, right? Yeah, you have to prick the skin because the skin mm. is much thicker. There is this layer of, of, of fat that you don't have in any other poultry like, uh, like chicken or any game bird. And that's because, because they are big birds, during migration, they have to go high in altitude to be able to protect themselves against predators, mostly men. And so high in altitude, that means where it's cold. So that layer of fat in the skin protect them. And the calorie cockpit, which is a liver, let them fly solo, non-stop, for the longest time possible without having to go back down and 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 try to find some food but risk uh, meeting predators and being killed by predators mm-hmm. so that's where nature made this perfectly beautiful liver that becomes that 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 calorie uh, cockpit and um, a couple more things it also made sure that it would be a nice balance. You know, the liver of a duck or a goose is smack exactly in the middle of the body and of the belly of those two uh, animals. Whereas any other living things, and including human beings, we do have our liver uh, more on the, the bottom right mm-hmm. of the... Um, so... Unlike uh, unlike us, uh, ducks and geese have the liver exactly in the middle because when the liver gets enlarged like that and it can get up to eight times its size uh, during the migration time, you don't want it to, uh, to be on the side. You really want it in the middle of the body to get the balance, um, especially when you have to fly those long distances <laughs> right. to, uh, to get to the right weather. So... Um Man has um, replicated this pre-flight um, yeah. yeah. time yeah. And, and, and gavage, yes. Now. And, and one last thing, one last thing is just to say that we, you know, when we anthropomorphize and we call the uh, neck of the duck, which is not a neck, it's a esophagus, uh, the esophagus is naturally insensitive um, and that's for pretty good reasons, but the one is to be able to uh, engorge and to take on as much food as possible 
in the crop sac, which is the first stomach, which is at the bottom of the esophagus, um, in order to pre-digestion, just you take a lot of food and you fly away immediately and you go to shelter because ducks and geese being big animals, slow to take off and animals of prey, they have to protect themselves in the wild against the predators. And the only way to do that is not to eat the food where they find it, but to take as much food as possible in their esophagus, in the crop sack, and then to go to shelter. And ah. that's why the esophagus is insensitive. Any bird, any bird's esophagus is insensitive. I'm sure you've seen all those videos of mommy bird feeding baby bird and uh, putting down her beak way, way down in uh -huh. the neck of the baby and without hurting uh, the baby bird. It's simply because this part of their body is insensitive. So man and now animal welfare groups took on this practice of gavage, gavage being the, you know, the, the manual feeding of the geese or ducks Yep. Um, that would replicate what they would do on their own. Yeah. So, all right. So now we have battles. Okay, saying that it's inhumane and and, and it's, you know what's happening. I mean, to the point where it, yeah. who was the? I think Chicago was the first city to to ban foie gras. Been around for five thousand years. Now all of a sudden, you know, they take up this 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 battle on. But they Animal were welfare. And it's, they were wrong, right. and, and, and less than two years later, they had to reverse it. That's right, and then they, they reversed wrong. it, right. Yeah. So it yeah. is personal opinion, yes. Yeah. However, it's affecting people's livelihood, and it's affecting people's uh, you know, uh, ability to, to have it, it if they want it. Yeah, because it's a false battle. Really, at the end of the day, it's not about geese and ducks. It's about people against meat in general and against meat consumption and yeah. using ducks and geese because it's the easy target to open that door. Why is it the easy target? Because of that gavage, you know, we do in order to uh, put that amount of food in a time when it is not naturally migration, there are a couple of days when man, who's a natural predator, is um, is going to take the duck, put a tube in the esophagus, against, again, it's insensitive, and, and put some food in there. But uh, at the third day, ducks and geese are in the migration mode. They were full. They are now thinking that it's migration time, and now they want to eat more and more. Um, it's a method. It's insensitive. It's not cruel. It's not stressful. Ducks are perfectly fine. When you go to the farm and you visit, you see right away, you see animals that are perfectly comfortable. And every time that we've had uh, government representatives or their, their advisors, eh, whether it's their veterinarians or whoever they wanted to bring to the farm to visit and to see it, they changed their mind. They understood that there was nothing to eat, that it was perfectly in the mainstream of uh, animal raising uh, for uh, uh, for man consumption. The the only people who are against dead against it are either one vegetarians, you know, people who are against meat in general, um, or two 
politi politicians who are uh, taking money from those um, vegan activists. That's, right. Well, that's these, it. I mean, these these conflicts of 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 opinions and. Um, as I say, these animal welfare groups have gotten larger and larger over the years. I mean, look at PETA and, and um, you know, yeah. the, the protests yeah. that they hold. Um, yeah. I mean, this got so heated up that it spawned at least two different books. One was The Fuagua Wars by Mark Caro in 2006. And the one yeah. in particular that, that I, um, I liked reading was the... Uh, um, more recent one, The Contested Tastes, Foie Gras and the Politics of Food, which you mentioned. It was a political, a political battle, too. And that was by um, a North Carolina State University sociology professor, Michaela de Sourci, in 2016. And she, I mean, she went, as you said, she went and she visited some of the the farms. Both, and, yeah, both of yeah. them, both Mark and Michaela yeah. uh, came to see me. I sent them to uh, the three farms in America because at the time there were only three farms. Now there are only two because obviously in California where we've been fighting for years and uh, we win the appeal and then they reappeal, they win their appeal and then we re, re, reappeal. I mean, it's, there is no end in California. But here in New York, all of a sudden, there was this um, last uh, last fall. Um, there was uh, these politicians, De Blasio and uh, Cory Johnson, and uh, the um, uh, the council, the council of uh, New York, um, who city voted. Council, yeah. yeah, the city council voted against uh, uh, foie gras consumption in New York City, and before they did that. We invite, when I say we, the, the Association of Farmers and, and Distributors of America, we invited every one of them. We called, we had people call them individually to tell them, come to the farm. Please come and check it out. If you don't want to come yourself, I mean, the closest farm is, at, is two hours away from New York uh, City. You know, it's not that big of a deal. If you don't want, if you don't have time, send somebody you trust. Do you know how many cons councilmen took our offer? Mm. Zero. 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 And, and believe me, we insisted. We insisted like hell. It's our livelihood. You know, it's, yeah. it's what we do for a living. So Zero. what do you see for the future of foie gras? Because the vote's coming up again, correct? So, uh, in New York City, I'm not worried, uh, the, um, that law would be effective, uh, next, uh, in 2021, I believe in November. I think we're going to overturn it before. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's gonna go the same way it went in Chicago. So there, I'm not, uh, worried. In California, we had a major victory, uh, this summer. Uh, on July 14th, which uh, <laughs> is uh, particularly uh, satisfying, uh, Bastille Day. Bastille um, Day, yes. <laughs> yeah, and so since then, we are again able to uh, send foie gras to California residents, but we are not yet allowed to uh, sell, well, we are allowed to sell foie gras, but uh, people within California are not allowed to resell it. So restaurants basically cannot put it on their menu. Um, so we're still fighting in court for that one last uh, step. And, and uh -huh. it's silly, but we're, it's going in the right direction. Yeah. 
Well, it's interesting when, and, and well, Europe, a lot of European countries too, though, kind of a group of them unilaterally banned foie gras. Um, no, no, they banned foie gras production. Production, But, but okay. they all eat foie gras. So France makes foie gras and all those countries who don't want to produce it actually uh, take it commercially, you know, and and, uh-huh. and make so it's no production. Well. And those, right. yeah, the, you figure those are countries that you don't, see, you never see it on the menu because they don't really have a lot of it. But if it is, then they just it, import it from France, right? Yeah, and yeah. and I think it was an easy, it was an easy battle. You know, you have that that um, illustration of. Uh, the funnel in the and the tube in the esophagus of the uh, of the burn and that alone, if you don't have all the explanation that I just took, what fifteen minutes to to explain here, if you mm-hmm. don't have that, if you only have that image, <laughs> that photo, then of course you're going to be against it. And so I think it was a very easy battle for uh, again. Um, Animal activists and, and vegetarians in, uh, in particular to get, um, uh, countries where there was no tradition of foie gras, uh, production, uh, because they had nothing to lose. Uh, the, um, the, the politicians had nothing to lose. If you don't produce it, nobody's going to be against not producing it. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened in Switzerland and uh, Great Britain in places like that. Right. And, you know, as I said before, it's a, you know, a matter of opinion and we all get to have our own opinions. But then again, you look at, you know, mass poultry production as a whole or any other kind of of animal production. And, you know, you could take a lot of those farms to task and and I think probably equal, if not, well, probably worse conditions. No, um, worse. No, yeah, no, worse conditions. Worse. I mean, we, we need to respect the ducks and the geese. We need to give them an environment without stress. Otherwise, they are not going to produce the foie gras. They mm. won't. You mm. know, they need their comfort. Whereas in those factory farms of chickens and turkeys, it's terrible what's happening. Those are not animals anymore. They are, mm-hmm. they are gidgets. You know, they are, they are, uh, a way to make money by hook or by crook at the least expense possible. There is no respect. And that's why at D'Artagnan, for the last 35 years, we source only from small farmers. We contract those small farmers and we make sure that they follow our specifications so that the animals have plenty of space inside, plenty of space outside, no stress and only natural food. Uh, because it's the only way to get a good product in the plate. And because our clients are prominently the best chefs of America, we, our mission is to get the best, best, uh, meat and poultry for them. And, and to this day, the only way to do that is to actually respect the animals and raise them the right way. There is right. no shortcut. There is no shortcut. Well, it's all very interesting, and I think if anyone wants to know more about it, they certainly can look up. There are plenty of resources that will will tell people all about it, and um, and we'll see. We'll we'll continue to keep our fingers crossed that all goes well for those who want to have it. And it, it would be it would be terrible if 
if it goes the wrong way. Because yeah. again, it's only opening the door for the uh, vegetarian activist, and and so after foie gras, the right, the next one is fish. You mm-hmm. cannot you cannot tell me that uh, fishing fish with a hook is not cool, yeah. you know. And that's that's the the image. That's the next one. Uh, so I'm I'm all for plant based anything. I think it's a good thing to replace factory farm because factory farm is a bad thing. But we need in the world we do need those small farmers. We do need to raise meat, to raise animals for meat consumption, because it does have a nice regenerative effect on the soil as long as it's done the right way artisanally in small family farms with respect of the animal. That's right. what's going to give us the best product and that's what's going to allow us to do it sustainably without destroying the earth. And and so if those activists have their way, they're going to kill the planet. And that it's that simple. It's that yeah. simple. Well, very well said, and I think we can end on that note. And I thank you so much, Ariane. A very impassioned speech, the speech, you know, <laughs> statement for sure, and with good reason. We are, but, we are um, stubborn but, in Gascony. Yes. We are very stubborn. <laughs> yeah, but the but just in mixing in then with all the the history and the of the the area and you know the family history and and how people have survived for so many years. It's, you know, it's really, um, it's, they're wonderful stories. And I hope that people will um, gauge their opinions on those stories. Thank you so much for sharing with me today. No, thank you. It was an honor to be with you today and a pleasure. And a yeah. pleasure. And it was um, a pleasure to have you as my guest. And also, it was wonderful to have you listening out there. And I hope that you will tune in again to A Taste of the Past. Thank you. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.